We're asking what God thinks about love, and we want to get God's definitions. And as you know, definitions can be funny things. I looked up some particular definitions and found the following. found a person who said that a myth is a female moth. person described a mosquito as an insect that makes you like flies better. <laughs> a paradox. No, this takes a little bit of... You've got to think a little bit here. I know it's late. A paradox is two physicians. <laughs> Polygon is a dead parrot. An arbitrator is a cook that leaves Arby's and goes to Burger King. (laughs) Avoidable is what a bullfighter tries to do. Balderdash is a rapidly receding hairline. (laughs) There's always like a second laughter after that. It takes balder... Oh, balderdash. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Uh, Cannibal is someone who is fed up with people. Uh, Cantaloupe, you got to get married in a church. Deranged is where the buffalo roam. An eyedropper is a clumsy ophthalmologist. If you don't know what an ophthalmologist is, then you probably won't get that joke. Experience is what men call their mistakes. I looked up uh, that sort of bastion of scholarly confidence, Wikipedia. And there I discovered the following definition of love. And it says this, Love is any number of emotions related to a sense of strong affection or attachment. It's any number of emotions related to a sense of strong affection or attachment. So what I want to ask this session is, what is the definition of love? More importantly, what is God's definition of love? Is love emotion? Is it emotional closeness? Is it physical attraction? Is it a sense of belonging? Maybe a sense of compatibility? What is love? What would be your definition if you were writing posts for Wikipedia? (laughs) What would you put down? As your definition of love. Go to the dictionary, go to L-L-O-V-E, love. What's the definition? How do you define it? Because any discussion of romantic love has to fit into the category of love in general. When you use the word love, you have to mean a certain thing. When you say, I love you, that word has a meaning. And so we have to ask, what is the definition of love? What's the real definition? What's your real definition? If I can ask you to be honest with yourself. Not the right answer, but what you actually think, what you actually live out. What's your definition of love? What does God think about love? God had a dictionary, and you went to his dictionary and turned it and opened it up, L-O-V-E. What would God say love is? How would he define love? God does have a definition of love. It's really throughout the Bible, but it's stated very explicitly in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. We actually sang it earlier, but if you turn with me there in your Bibles, 
First John chapter three and verse 16. We have God's definition of love. Very important. Very important even as we look at the rest of the messages tomorrow, as we think about romance. Our definition of love has to conform itself to what God thinks about love. Our definition of romance has to conform itself to what God thinks about love. More painfully, we are bound to obey and live out romantically God's definition of love. 1 John 3.16 says this. By this we know love. So here it is. Here's God's definition of love. Here's what God would say. By this we know love. That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So this is God's definition of love. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. He being Jesus, obviously in the passage. He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I'd summarize God's definition of love this way. Self-sacrifice for another's good. Self-sacrifice For another's good. I want to introduce you to two more characters that I think we can draw out of this section of Scripture. Two more characters. One is called the servant and the other one's called the love spy. The servant and the love spy. And basically what we're asking is, does God's definition of love conform to our definition of love? Or rather the other way around. Do do we think the way God thinks when we use the word love? Or when we apply it romantically? Do we think... The way God thinks. Would we say that every time we've thought about romance and our perspective, our romance worldview fits in with this verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the first character is the servant. The servant is someone who has embraced God's definition of love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. God would say that Jesus is his definition of love. God would say that Jesus, the he in that passage, verse 16, is God's definition of love. He laid down his life for us. In other words, he sacrificed himself. And you know the gospel story. He came from heaven. He gave up the glory of heaven. And he came down to earth. He encapsulated himself in human form. He walked through the suffering realities of a fallen world. He died on a cross bearing the sins of everyone who would believe in him. He went into the grave. He rose on the third day so that people who trust in him could know God and be with God forever in heaven. He laid down his life for his people. Their sins literally drove him to the cross where he offered up his life as a sacrifice of atonement to God so that we could be at peace with God, so that we could know God. And God says, okay, now, aside from everything else that was happening at the cross, one of the things that was happening was God was stating for all eternity and for your life the definition of love. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus is God's definition of love. And if we're honest, it's a really uncomfortable definition. By definition, it's uncomfortable. He laid down his life. It's uncomfortable. He laid down his life. That's God's definition of love. Do we really believe that? Or is that some very nice thing that we say in Sunday school, memorize as a verse and sing on Sunday? Do we apply it to our view of romance? Jesus is God's definition of love. In other words, when we, when we think about being romantically attracted to someone, when we kind of imagine that wonderful moment as a single guy, a single girl, when we're going to finally meet that special someone, and that special someone is going to think of us the same way, praise the Lord, and then we're going to get married to that person, what we are saying is, I am so excited to have found you because I can't wait to lay down my preferences for the rest of my life to bless you. That's what God thinks. He sees these two people that he's planned to come together through all eternity. And he crafted their background and their heritage and their upbringing and their strengths and their weaknesses and everything. And he brings them together and he says, oh, this will be great. This person has all of these cravings and rights and preferences and interests and everything. And he's going to lay all of those down for the good of this other person. Whenever it's necessary. However it's necessary. And, amazingly, she's going to do the same thing for him. And you know what's happening right there? Love. Now that's uncomfortable. That's a really uncomfortable definition of love because we don't, we don't often think that way when we think about romance. We tend to think about romance as far more like emotion or enthusiasm or tension or interest or maybe possibilities. Romance is in those more vague, exciting kind of categories. Not my sacrifice for the other person's good. But that's what God thinks about love. And if we start with the Bible, if we start with the Bible, if we start with God's definition of love, if we sort of blank out our minds from everything we've ever heard, from every movie we've watched, the Hallmark aisle at Walmart, and every magazine, and every grocery store, if we blank all of that out, and we just start here, wow, that's a really different perspective. Walking into youth group when the guy you like walks up to you. Self-sacrifice for the other person's good. Man, that's just like really uncomfortable. What does that even mean? And be honest with yourselves, especially young people. Are you applying right now that definition of love when you think about relationships? Because it's not the world's definition. It's just not. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine a movie... I'm sure you can. Imagine a movie, good-looking, kind of older-ish, you know, 20-something dude meets this youngish girl, and they just really like each other, and initially there's all this tension because you don't really know what's going to happen. She's got all these other friends. He's a little weird. He's got this kind of unknown past. And then, you know, there's some great moment where they are forced together by fate or Cupid or whatever the movie's tending to say, and then they come together and they really like each other. They're standoffish for a while, but we all know how it's going to end, and they're going to come together, and it's going to be wonderful. Now, the world wouldn't proclaim their definition of love 
at the beginning of that movie. They wouldn't, because the world's definition of love is another person's sacrifice for your good. Now, they don't say that, right? It's not on the billboard. Here's going to be a movie about a young girl. She's going to be sacrificed for this guy's immediate desires. It'll be great. And we're going to put music to it and special effects and maybe the supernatural. Work that in. It'll be awesome. It's going to be a great movie about love. Teen romance. You should go Friday night at 11. It starts. Someone else's sacrifice for your good. I mean, do we really expect anything different from a fallen world? But that is the definition of love in this world. Someone else's sacrifice for my immediate good, my immediate pleasure, what I immediately want. Isn't that the world's definition of love? Isn't that really what you see plastered across every tabloid and every grocery store? If you go to the young fiction aisle in Barnes, I went to the young fiction table in Barnes and Noble the other day. There's a table called Summer Reading. Okay? Summer Reading is dominated by romance. I don't know why summer especially, but that's the only thing people want to read, I guess, in the summer, according to Barnes & Noble. The only exception to that is when you have a category that's called sort of, um, how would you put it, supernatural angels and demons applied into a teen romance novel category. (laughs) So you have normal romantic novels for the summer, and then you have the kind where there's supernatural romance novels for the summer. But really, the same thing, that's all anybody wants to read about. And I would be willing to bet that in those books, there's a lot of tragedy that happens, a lot of sadness, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of pain, all of which is done away with because of the few moments of emotional excitement and enthusiasm that take place that make it all worth it. The true servant believes in God's definition of love, self-sacrifice for someone else's good. They reject the world's definition, which is my good through another's sacrifice. It doesn't matter what kind of music you put it to. It doesn't matter what kind of drama takes place. It doesn't even matter how the person looks and how they talk. What matters is, are they applying this definition of love? My sacrifice for the other person's eternal good. Not very often in the world. But the true servant has embraced that, has seen in Jesus the ultimate form of servanthood and is eager to apply that into the world of romance and potentially romantic relationships. He's eager to apply romance should be a context for servanthood, according to God. God's definition of love. But the world emphasizes romantic tension, emphasizes my good for another's sacrifice. And underneath the world's definition of love is a second character called a love spy. First character is true love, looks like Jesus. Second character is a love spy. The love spy is actually about hatred. He puts on the garb of love, but is actually about hatred. Now, you know what a real spy does. A real spy goes into a country, assumes the garb of that country, maybe in the military or government or something, 
And though he seems to be working for the good of that country, he's actually doing the opposite. He's actually selling secrets to another nationality. He's actually contributing to the downfall of that country. That's what a spy does, right? He puts on the garb of a friend while he's actually a foe. That's what a spy does. Well, a love spy is no different. A love spy looks like he's a servant while actually undermining that person's good. He seems to be doing all things with a good motive, good intention, good desires, while actually he's got a subtle attempt going on to undermine this other person. It's a love spy. That's what a love spy does. And there's actually a love spy in this passage in 1 John just a few verses earlier. The love spy introduces for John the love servant. So notice there, if you would, in verse 12. Go back up just a few verses. I just want you to... Notice something, the beginning of this passage on love. It says this in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, he was jealous. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, Cain, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, Cain was a love spy. Cain was the original, ultimate love spy. Well, actually, the original one was Satan in the garden. After that, Cain did a pretty good imitation job. Cain was the love spy. So he comes to his brother Abel, and initially he talks like a brother. Let's go out in the field. They didn't have Starbucks, all right? (laughs) They had the cornfield and the cucumber field. You've got to go to one or the other. All right, let's go out in the field. And so go out in the field, just like a brother does, right? Abel has no idea what's coming. He's acting like a brother. We get together, we hang out, we talk just like a brother would, right? Masquerading as a brother who loves and wants to have fellowship. And then when he gets him out in the field, he clocks him in the head with a rock. He kills him. The first murder is committed. Now, hopefully there's nobody here that's killed anybody. On the other hand, every single person in this room has killed people. Murder, according to God, is just my good by sacrificing someone else. That's why James says, Why do you fight and quarrel? I'll tell you why. You have desires. Those desires aren't met, so what do you do? You fight, and then you murder. I don't think James means that everybody you talk to actually hit somebody in the head or killed them or stabbed them or something. No, he just means, no, murder, murder, metaphorically, is just, I'm going to sacrifice you because I'd really rather you weren't alive right now. I really, Your life is in my way. Or maybe your convictions are in my way. Or maybe your standoffishness is in my way. Or maybe you're in temporary reserve. It's in my way. Or maybe your suspicions of me, they're in my way. So I'm going to get those out of the way. I'm going to get your ultimate good out of my way for my immediate benefit. God says, that's called murder in my book. The love spy equates love with murder. It's another's sacrifice for my immediate benefit. 
The true servant lays down his own life for the good of another. The love spy pretends like he's impressed with the other person and wants to benefit them, but all the while underneath is a subtle motive of gaining benefit from them at their cost. And that's why I think John says we should not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Rather, we should be like Jesus. God's definition of love, self-sacrifice for another person's good. Now, what does this have to do with romance? Well, it's cool to be a romantic love spy. It's very cool. It's a guy who helps a girl with her grades so he can hang out with her more, though he's not really interested in her good at all. It's a girl who flirts with some guy because she's hoping he'll pay a lot more attention to her. Even though she's not really interested in his spiritual good, his growth as a leader, she's not interested in sacrificing herself for his good. The love spy looks like they're interested, but they disguise selfishness as interest. They look nice, but inside there is no willingness to sacrifice. There's no willingness to lay down immediate preferences with this person's long-term long view kind of life goals or perspectives or most importantly their soul's well-being none of those things are in view it's only the immediate emotional romantic benefit i can derive from this person no matter what the cost is to them it's a love spy the love spy is like cain rather than jesus there is something of a love spy in many of us. And the love spy is celebrated in this culture through the hookup culture. It's my benefit at your cost. It's celebrated in entertainment. It's celebrated in media. It's celebrated in youth romantic novels. It's celebrated over and over and over again because the real, the real question to be asked is who can I get with? And the question that is never asked is what cost will that bring to them? What cost will it bring to them? What about their eternal good? What about their good even in the short term? That's not asked at all. Both people are only asking what can I gain without reference to cost? It's a love spot. It's Cain saying, come on, Abel, let's go out in the field. Now, don't get me wrong. Romance and attraction and all of the fun that comes with that, as God has planned it, is thrilling and exciting and worth pursuing. It's thrilling and exciting and worth pursuing. But, according to God's plan, there is a way of gaining all of that while still walking the path with Jesus of sacrificing my immediate cravings for the other person's good. 
And we walk this path of servanthood with Jesus and we discover with Him the joy that He has prepared for us on the other side. The joy that is mutual. The joy that is without cost or guilt or pain or regret. That is the joy that He has prepared for the servants who walk the road of self-sacrifice with Him. Self-sacrifice for another person's good. Now this world sees physical intimacy and attraction as the highest power known to man. And if you like someone, there is nothing more powerful in your life than getting to act on liking them. God says, I made you to like someone. I made it to be used for your blessing, for their good, for my glory. I made all of that in you because I love you. And I want it to be used... In all the ways, in the timing, in the context, in the preparation for the other person's good and for my glory. The love spy takes all of that blessing and dismisses any sacrifice. The true servant has to look hard at Jesus and ask How does self-sacrifice look in any given situation? The Bible simply doesn't give a step-by-step process for getting from 14 to marriage. It simply doesn't. Now, if you find it, come tell me, because I'll have to go back and change the whole series, okay? It just doesn't give that kind of detailed instruction. But it does give us some principles that are painfully wonderful to obey. It does give us some pretty hefty principles, and a big one is that true servanthood, in other words, true love, is self-sacrifice for another person's good. It asks that question about every relationship, in particular those that might possibly be romantic. It doesn't tell you what age courtship should begin or dating should begin. It doesn't tell you exactly where you should date or how you should date. It doesn't tell you exactly who should be around when you date. It doesn't tell you whether you should date this person or that person and how long and what the wedding should look like. It doesn't tell you any of those things. And man, it'd be nice if it did, seems like. But it just doesn't. What it does tell you is serve. Serve, 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 serve. It does tell you that any romantic relationship you would ever consider pursuing should be defined by true love. And a lot that you wouldn't pursue because they couldn't be defined by true love. It does tell you to serve in such a way that you're not interested in hinting at affection that you can't commit to. It tells you to serve in such a way that you're not interested in pursuing any attraction that you're not willing to sacrifice to ensure that it's in the right context. There's applications for what you wear, how you talk, what you hint at, what you're willing to say to a given person, what you think you shouldn't say to a given person. All of those can be tested by this standard. Are you sacrificing your immediate benefit, whether it be flirtation buzz or some kind of entrapment of this person or possibly an interest that you want to communicate so desperately even though you know it would not be for this person's good? All of those things have to be evaluated by this standard. Are you sacrificing yourself 
and honestly able to say it's for the other person's good. Now, I can't give you a lot of rules if you're single and you want to get married someday about how exactly that's going to look. But I can say this. A failure to sacrifice immediate benefit for this person's eternal good, no matter how that looks in wardrobe, in conversation, in interest, in conversation with others, or in mental imaginations in the meantime, after the Starbucks run that you just had with those other four people, all of those patterns of life have to be evaluated about whether they are servanthood or selfishness. And selfishness isn't just a lesser road. It's a sinful road. It's like Cain. And we're called to be like Jesus. Is that expression or wardrobe or decision or glance or extra ten minutes of conversation, was it self-sacrifice for the other person's good? There's joy on the other side of walking the road of servanthood with Jesus. Brothers, lay down your life for your sisters. Sisters, lay down your life for your brothers. Don't do anything that isn't sacrificing your immediate benefit if their eternal good is in jeopardy. Lay down your lives for each other. No pursuit, listen, no pursuit of romance is ever godly unless within that pursuit we may honestly say, I am laying down my life for this person's ultimate good. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how you pull it off. I don't care where it's the middle of a courtship, a dating relationship, or just hanging out at Chuck E. Cheese. It is never godly unless it is servanthood for the other person's good. In that sacrifice, like there was for Jesus, is a lot of joy. The joy of walking with Him. The joy of trusting His ultimate plan for our lives. The joy of of serving others. In this is love. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of your definition of servanthood and really, Lord, in disgust at our frequent pursuit of selfishness. But I pray for every single person here, for every married couple here, Lord, that you would reveal to us the glory of your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, the unrepeatable sacrifice that you gave for our salvation. And Lord, may we reflect you in some smaller way as we lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. Give discernment, Lord, for every detail in light of your call to servanthood. In Jesus' name, amen.